This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. As you're sitting down, if you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Next week... um, We're beginning a new series, and uh, it's a series of expositional messages, meaning that each week we'll study through a text verse by verse like we always do. Uh, But it's going to be a series based on a theme and not just a book of the Bible. So we're going to be looking at some Old Testament and some New Testament passages that all are under the theme of the mission of the church. The mission of the church. And uh, I, I think it's so important that rather than just sort of give like a 10 second overview here saying, Ooh, it's going to be really neat. Uh, what I did instead was, um, this week, uh, someone shot a little video of me just talking about this series. And so we'll have that up on the city tonight or this afternoon or sometime. I don't know when you can check the city and get the link to the YouTube video, just, uh, where I'm sharing my heart on, uh, our mission as a church, why we're doing this. And I'm going to go over even the messages. What are the message themes and that sort of thing. So, uh, it'll give you a little bit of a, a background and then come, come ready next week as, uh, next week we're going to talk about the great commission. Uh, so if you'd like to read ahead, you can read Matthew 28 because that's what we're going to be talking about, uh, next week as the launch of this serve of this series on our mission together. So, um, look forward to that. Well, let me pray and then we will uh, jump in. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you in particular for this book of Ecclesiastes and what it means to us and what it has meant to us. And we pray today that you would just speak to us very clearly as we have an overview of the book and uh, that, we wouldn't, uh, that we wouldn't leave this behind like just some summer reading that we did, but that you would uh, nail these ideas, these truths from this book into our hearts that we might uh, that we might walk out of here, uh, God, with a fresh appreciation of you and what you've done, and with the glorious purpose that we have in life to glorify you, uh, to uh, to honor you, to follow you, Lord. What a joy that is! And so, speak to us now in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you a question: What is the point of life? What is the meaning of the universe? Why are you inhaling and exhaling oxygen in this room today? Uh, that, that, those aren't the kind of questions we typically ask, are they? I mean, now we have asked those questions this summer, but normally those aren't the type of questions that people, people ask. Maybe if you're a college student, you're thinking deeply about the meaning of life and stuff like that. But if you're younger, probably not. And if you're older, uh, like me, a lot older even, we just get in a rut in life. And we don't think about these, these big questions like, what's the point of life? I mean, it's not something that you're, gonna, you're not going to watch the football game with your buddy and just sort of lean over and say, pass the chips. And, and by the way, what do you feel like the meaning of life is? I mean, nobody, nobody really even talks like that. You're not going to be changing the 10th diaper of the day uh, tomorrow afternoon and be wondering, oh, in mid-diaper change, I wonder what the point of life is. The point of life is getting the kid potty trained at that point, and you're not thinking about deeper philosophical issues for sure. So we don't think about it very much, but it's a very important thing to think about, and here's the reason. We don't want to get to the end of our lives and find out we missed the point. Who wants to live their whole life and find out at the end, I didn't get the meaning? It all passed by, and I mean, it, because this isn't, just an, uh, this isn't just a mistake or, oh, I forgot about that, or an oversight. This is your life. And so there are eternal matters at stake. And so we want to be those who think about the point of life. And the book of Ecclesiastes, which is an Old Testament book that we've spent four months walking through, and today I'm going to recap all of that. So if you weren't here for any of that, you're going to be fine. You get in about a half an hour what everybody else took four months to go through. So you, you're getting the, the, uh, the highlights and the nuggets here. Uh, and I'm going to cover the entire book. It's 12 chapters. I'm going to cover it all in this sermon. So I've never done anything like this and may never try it again. But there you go. The book is a book of wisdom literature in the Bible. Wisdom literature tells us how to live our lives, 
How do we apply the practical knowledge of knowing God and work that out in everyday life? So there's books of the Bible that are dedicated to that purpose, to show us wisdom in life and ultimately point to the ultimate person of wisdom, Jesus Christ. So it's a book of wisdom. It's written by a guy who calls himself the preacher. Um, The Greek Uh, His name transliterated in Greek is Ecclesiastes. And so what he does is he gives a lot of wisdom for life and he gives us this autobiographical sketch where he describes his own life and uh, he tries to tell us about the meaning of life. Not tries, he does it successfully because God is speaking through him. So I think, and, and I, I, read the, I read everything that we've taught uh, and, and went over the whole thing this summer, uh, that we went over this summer, this week, and I pulled out four big ideas that I think are, that answer the question, what's the meaning of life? These are like four pillars to have firm, to know the meaning of the life of life from God's perspective um, from the writing of Ecclesiastes. And here's the first one. Life under the sun is meaningless. Life under the sun is meaningless. Now that sounds like a shaky pillar, but hang on, don't leave. And uh, we'll see that it's ultimately stable. Uh, this is how he opens the book in chapter one. He opens the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, by saying this. And we'll spend a lot of time in the first three chapters because almost all the ideas of the book are in the first three chapters, and then they're just developed throughout. So he says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. So this guy, Ecclesiastes, uh, he makes a very honest assessment of life and he comes up with this evaluation. This is his sort of his summary point. He leads with his summary. His summary point is that vanity of vanities, all of life is vanity. And that's kind of the big idea, a big idea of the book. And I think what is one of the four central cores of the whole book is that life is ultimately vanity. Now, when he uses this word, he is not talking about being conceited. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. That kind of, you think everything revolves around you. That's not what he's talking about, that kind of vanity. He's talking about a different kind of vanity. And the word is actually a metaphor. We've looked at this a lot. It's a picture. The word he actually uses there is vapor, or it could be translated breath. So he says, life's a breath. Life's a vapor. If you combine those two, we've considered this idea. When it's freezing, which about a week ago I couldn't even imagine, but I walked out this morning and I thought, it might freeze again. Uh, It was refreshing and it might get cool again. This could really happen. Um, So we don't think much about freezing right now. But when it's freezing, this will be a great illustration in February. And uh, you go outside and you breathe. You can see your breath for a moment. It's a vapor. Uh, It's it's breath. It's vapor. It's the same thing. It's there for a moment. And that's what he says life is like. So at one level, he's saying that it's fleeting. Like when you blow out there, it, it it doesn't maintain. It just appears for a second and then it's gone. So at one level, life is fleeting. That's a point he makes a lot. But secondly, the, the, the truth is that life is ungraspable, that, it is, that it, it is light, it is elusive. You can't really grab a hold of it. I mean, if you try to reach out and package that breath, that vapor, if you try to grab hold of it, if a little kid jumps up and grabs and tries to hang on, it's not going to happen. Why? Because it's empty. It's, 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 there's nothing there. It's futile. It's just there for a second. And so sometimes that metaphor, that picture is translated as meaningless. Very popular translation of the Bible. The NIV translates it meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. All of life is utterly meaningless. It's short. It's fleeting. It's wispy. It's, it's futile. We could say it's, it's vain. What's the point? He would say at the beginning, well, it seems like there is none. He, he even asked the question in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? And then he goes on and talks about all the work we do to accomplish things and all the, the, the activity where we try to find significance in our life. At the end of the day, it's a whole big wad of nothing is what he says. But there's one qualifier there's this just one little phrase that's so key that really, that, that, that is an interpretive key to his whole book. And it's that he says, 
What, verse 3, does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun. He uses that phrase 29 times. Almost every time in the book, almost every time he talks about vanity, and he says life is vain or talks about vanity about 38 times in 12 chapters. But 29 of those times, he also mentions this phrase, under the sun. Life is under the sun. And what he's doing is that's code. And he's giving it at the beginning and developing out is that there's really two ways to look at life. You can look at life under the sun and that's life without reference to God. That's just going about your business. So you're just waking up, you're eating, not thinking about God. You're going to work, not thinking about God. We're just living as if he doesn't exist. We're just going through life, doing our lives. And that's life under the sun. So if we live life just as if He's sort of like saying, as if all there is, is what we can see above us, the sun down. From the sun down, everything that I can see, everything that I can feel, everything that my senses can identify, that's all of reality. So if we view all of reality as just what I can see and experience right before me, what I can measure right before me, then here's the conclusion. Life is meaningless. Life is empty. Life is fleeting. And, and I think he's, he's identifying something that's so, that if we're honest, all of us have felt that at some point. I mean, if we've ever thought at all about life, we said, really, is this all there is? I mean, who hasn't at some point said, well, I had this great experience, but really, is that all there is to it? A bunch of us in our church got together in people's living rooms and watched the Cowboys game on Wednesday night. And that was very exciting. And uh, it was wonderful to, uh, to have a victory. But the reality is I was excited about that victory Wednesday night. But when it came to Friday, I mean, I just wasn't waking up Friday thinking about, wow, life has meaning. I had a great experience. The Cowboys won. Yes, life has me. And if you do feel that way, please get a life because... <laughs> Let me just warn you, you want to talk about something that's a vapor and is fleeting? It's an undefeated cowboy season. That is what's... We're undefeated right now. I love them. We're undefeated right now. But if you think that at the end of the season, you're going to end up and say, it's just like it began, I'm going to tell you, come end of December, early January, all Cowboys fans will be saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Should be like the marketing motto of the Dallas Cowboys in in this decade, not in the 90s, so... But thankfully, all is not vain with the Rangers. But I'm, getting, I'm getting, uh, getting distracted here. But the reality is that experience just didn't leave me fulfilled. I'm looking for another experience, right? And so he's saying that the way we live our lives is that ultimately we, we don't really make enduring progress. We have these certain highs and these certain accomplishments that seem great. But nothing really is enduring with it. It's like that breath that's just out there and gone. So life under the sun is meaningless. Life without reference to God is meaningless. So what he does is he goes on this search for meaning. He's not like you and me who don't give a lot of thought to this. He says, okay, I'm going to orient my whole life towards pursuing meaning. And the first thing he does, he says in chapter, uh, the first chapter is that he pursues wisdom. He also lets us know he's the wisest man who's been in Jerusalem as king. He's king of Jerusalem, king of Israel. So he's probably uh, Solomon. That, it seems like he is King Solomon, though he never calls himself that. He certainly is the profile of King Solomon, so we assume that's who he is. And he says, I went and pursued all this wisdom. He's smarter than any of us. He, he pursued all this wisdom. And he said, it was vanity. Okay, there's the vapor. And then he said, it was like striving after wind. I tried to get wisdom, and it's like trying to catch the wind. I can't catch it. I can't get it. I can't get my arms around explaining the universe by human wisdom. So it was empty, is what he said. And then he went on a pursuit of pleasure. He said, well, I couldn't find it in wisdom, so I'm going to pursue material excess and sensual excess, and I'm going to live uh, the dream life, because I can, basically, is what his situation is. So look at chapter 2. This is his autobiography. This is his pursuit of wisdom. See, it seems so meaningless, but I'm going to see if I can grab some meaning in life. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I'm going to make some comments as we read along here. Chapter, I mean, verse two, chapter, (laughs) chapter two, verse one. There we go. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I'm going to test my heart. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also, this also was vanity. 
I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? What he said is I I went after laughter. I thought if I can just have a, a, I mean, I'm going to try comedy. Let me go find something to laugh at. Let me fill my life with laughter, frivolity, humor, go to Comedy Central, whatever. I'm just going to go laugh, find funny things. Watch it, you know, get, get a comedy movie on Netflix. Let's just laugh, laugh, laugh. But I found, I said, what use is it? I, verse three, I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he, he became a wine connoisseur. He said, I had my wisdom with me. So he didn't become evidently, um, uh, an alcoholic or an alcohol abuser. He said, I had some wisdom to me. I wasn't enslaved and give his whole life over to alcohol, but he did pursue alcohol. The Bible presents wine as both a gift of God and it also brings warnings that come along with it. Um, and so he received that and enjoyed that, but uh, he drank the best wine and life was still meaningless is what he's saying. Verse four, I made great works. And this guy made works. Look what he did. I built houses, plural. He's the king. He has multiple, he has a palace and multiple houses. Planted vineyards for myself. So he's going to become a winemaker. He's going to have his own grapes. He's going to grow, uh, uh, going to grow um, grapes. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. So this isn't your sad little vegetable garden in the backyard, or my, I, I can't say, say yours because I don't have one, but uh, this isn't like the little vegetable garden. This is like public parks. This guy's building the arboretum out in his backyard and saying, I'm going to have the best. I'm going to have vineyards and gardens like parks. So I got to play. This is like, these are like public type, what you would expect to be public types type of uh, settings that are his personally. Guy builds Central Park for himself. So he's got parks, gardens, all kinds of fruit trees. He's growing stuff. He's got the best fruit. Verse six, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He's, he's got his own irrigation system. So he's just letting you know, not only did we grow stuff, we, we built a whole system to water it all. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house So he had people to take care of all this. He wasn't the guy digging the parks. He was overseeing them and digging the gardens, overseeing the parks. He says, I also had possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he had that, that was a sign of wealth in that day. Uh, He had an agricultural empire. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. So this guy had serious money. He had stocks. He had investments. He he had a little bit of everything. He had hard assets like gold and silver. He had treasure of other kings. Kings gave him their treasures. I got singers, both men and women. He had live music's what he sang. So we just, we carry around our music. I got a cell phone with all my music in it. So we carry around our own music. This guy had live music as he counted his gold and looked at his parks, looked at his gardens, drank his fine wine. Could the band please play this live number for me? I mean, he just had live music. I had many concubines. Concubine in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is someone you have marital intimacy with that isn't your wife. Someone that you have on the side that you sleep with. Uh, King Solomon had 300 of those. That's amazing. Well, he had 700 wives. So this guy had 1,000 women that he was pursuing sensual pleasure with. The delight of the children of man. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, I'd say. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Anything I wanted, I got, because I'm the king and have power, is what he's saying. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, I was the happiest man alive. No, he says, behold, all was vanity. 
and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. King Solomon was the picture of hedonistic excess. He was the picture of material excess. He was the the, the picture of sensual excess. He was the, the picture of whatever his senses desired to eat, to see, to sleep with. Whatever, whatever he wanted, he had. He was brilliant. He had wisdom above all, houses, gardens, possessions, more money than he could spend. He had wine, women, and song. And here's what he said. All of that added up to zero. You take everything, everything my eyes could see that I wanted, I added all that up, drew a line, figured it out, and it was meaningless. It did not bring me what I desired under the sun. That is what he says. It was all a striving after the wind. He says, there's nothing, verse 11, there's nothing to be gained under the sun. I gained everything under the sun, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That is his point, is that, Life under the sun is meaningless. You can't own enough. You can't drink enough. You can't hear enough. You can't know enough. You can't build enough. You can't accomplish enough. You can't be respected enough. You can't have power enough to have a meaningful life. That's what the scripture says about the philosophy of life. Apart from God. But everyone keeps trying, thinking, if I just have a little more, if I just know a little more, if I just experience a little more, if my relationship will just change this way, or if I'll have a relationship, or if this circumstance will change, or if I get a new boss or a new job, or if I could get this much in savings, or if I could get this much in my retirement account, or if I could get this car, or if I could buy my first house, or if I could get that promotion... If my kids would do this or do that, if I could have kids, if I could just get a little more of this, then life would be meaning. And he's saying, apart from God, you can get all this because he got all that. And life was meaningless. So the first pillar of the book is life under the sun is meaningless. The second pillar uh, in the book where he really goes next, the next uh, prominent big idea that he gives us in the book is that life under the sun is meaningless, but life with God is full of joy. Life under the sun is meaningless and life with God is full of joy. Here's the thing about the book is it starts off so depressing and it's a book on joy. The whole book, really the heart of the book is about joy in life. And so he goes to the next point. He says, life with God is full of joy. Life under the sun is empty. Life with God is full of joy. And he first mentions God, really, seriously, at the end of chapter 2. This is what he says in 2, 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him... God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. So here's what he's saying. He first mentions God. He looks up above the sun. And, and what he says in verse uh, 25 is that verse 24 is that I saw that finding enjoyment in life is from the hand of God. So now we're not looking just under the sun. We're looking before and saying all the stuff I pursued and was looking for meaning. I found that meaning came from the hand of God. The hand of God is a picture that it's a gift. It's something to be received. It's something God that provides. It's not me going after it and getting it and finding meaning in it all. It's something that God gives and God provides. In verse 25, he says, apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He's saying that I'm chasing meaning, I'm chasing joy, I'm chasing purpose, I'm chasing something that matters. But you can't get that without God. That's what he found out. That's what he found out. And many of us don't know that, or we find that out way too late, or we sort of know it, but don't believe it. So we're going to pursue this other and keep trying. I want to save myself and save us all the hassle. It's an empty, it's an empty process. It's striving after wind. 
will never grab it. And so what he says is that all of these things, all that, that we can have in life is provided from God, but even the ability to enjoy them are a gift of God as well. So we could say there's gifts all around us. God has provided so much stuff for us that we can lawfully enjoy, meaning that the scripture would say it's a gift of God and it's to be celebrated and received and used. We'll talk about that in a minute, used for his glory. But what he's saying is I realize that not only is all that stuff from God, but the ability to use it is from God. It's kind of like a Christmas toy, kind of like a toy. Give your kid something for birthday or Christmas, little kid, and you open it up and it doesn't work. And you realize, oh, you have to have batteries for this thing. That's kind of what he's talking about here. And what he's saying is that not only is the gift, the toy, that something we can enjoy and receive from God, but the ability to receive it's a gift, uh, to enjoy it's a gift from God. And he's saying batteries are included with God, that God not only provides for us things, people, relationships, purpose, but that in providing those, he provides the ability to enjoy that and to find meaning and purpose in our lives. He provides the ability to have a vision for our life. He, he provides the ability to have a reason to wake up in the morning, seeing that we have a calling from God on our lives and that we are living for him. And that we can enjoy, he says, the basic stuff of life, even our toil, our job, our work. So he's reorienting any, everything. And he's saying, under the sun, he just mentioned here, eating and drinking and toil. Under the sun, eating and drinking and your job, what he's talking about, the regular stuff of your life is empty without God. But what he says is, from the hand of God, we can find enjoyment. So what he does, by the end of the second chapter, is the Lord teaches us here that everything is turned upside down. And we we get a whole different picture. He starts the book off saying nothing matters. It's all vain. It's, it's that breath of air. And by the end of the second chapter, he says, Oh, wait a minute with God, everything matters. Everything matters. This is a whole vision for life. That's radically different than, than many of us live with. It's a vision that everything in life matters. Everything matters, and we're going to talk about how it matters in a second. But he gives this one, he gives this one catch. You see, there's a condition on it all. And, and the condition is in verse 26 that we just read. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Okay? He, he's looking for wisdom. He's looking for knowledge. He's looking for joy. He's finding none of them. He's saying it's a gift from God. To, so to know the purpose of life to know the meaning of life and joy, to enjoy your life in the midst of suffering even, to have joy in our heart even in the midst of suffering. To get that, it's not just that we know that comes from God and the ability to enjoy it comes from God. It's given to the person who pleases God. And that's not everybody. Now you say, well, don't we please God just being who we are? Yeah, well, at one level, yes. At one level, the Bible would say yes. The Bible says that God created everyone, God created humans in the image of himself. And if you read Genesis 1, what you'll find out is that God creates everything. And then the, the, uh, the crowning work of creation, the big deal of creation is he makes man and he makes woman. Their names are Adam and Eve. And he looks at everything and says it's very good. So at one level, God is pleased with everyone in the sense that he, he has created us in his image. So every person has value. Every person has worth. Every person is to be respect. We're to respect. Every person is a creation of God, and there's value in that alone. So at one level, God obviously um, is pleased to create us for his glory. But the Bible doesn't end right there in Genesis 1 with creation because something happens very quickly. And man sins against God. That is, does what God disallows. So God tells him you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not this one. And ultimately, Adam and Eve go and eat of that one. And so the relationship they have with God is broken, and we have all been sinning ever since. So God is pleased to create people for his glory. But the problem is we have acted in a way where we have run away from him. We have turned our back on him. We've all done the Solomon thing. We just don't have the means that he has. But in our heart, we've all chased other stuff. 
just like he has to find meaning. And that is sin. God calls us to uh, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself and, and ourselves. And we have not done that. I have not done that. I haven't loved God with my whole life all the time. I mean, I've gone long periods of time without even thinking about God. And he says every, every act is to be done. for. We haven't done that. I haven't done that. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself always. I've gone long periods of time where I wouldn't say I don't do it always. I'd say I do it rarely, if ever, periods of my life where I've been self-motivated, self-oriented, loving myself. We all know what that's like, and the Bible calls that sin. And the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we're not pleasing to God. God is a holy and a just and a righteous God, and he's not pleased with people that rebel against him. And that's not a shocking thing. We look in our culture, we don't, we're not pleased with people that rebel against the law. If someone goes out and rapes, we're not saying that's a good thing, that someone's sinning against the civil law that we have. We're saying that's terrible. Someone goes out and murders. No, we're not saying that's not a big deal. That is breaking the law of the land. Well, we have all broken the law of God throughout our lives, and it's offensive to him. And here's what he did. He wanted to restore that broken image in each of us, and he wanted to restore that broken relationship. So he made a way for us to be reconciled to him so that, so that we would be pleasing before him because we wouldn't be rebelling against him, but we, we wouldn't be turning our back on him, but we'd be facing him. We'd be brought into relationship with him. And he did that by coming himself on our behalf in Jesus Christ to give his life for our sins. This is so important. He didn't just send someone else. I had an opportunity on Friday night to tell this good news to someone. I had a very bad opportunity because I broke down on the freeway right at downtown at 7 o'clock at night. And, well, that's a whole other story I'll share in another sermon. Cops that came out and blocked off traffic. It was, it was a nightmare. But anyway, uh, but that meant I had to get a tow. And so I got to talk to this tow truck driver because we're just captive in a cab together. And um, what's he going to do? So... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I was able to talk with him and then here's ultimately where it came down to for him. He said, yeah, well, I believe that God, there is a God, but here's what he said. I believe God created Jesus and Jesus is a man that was just created by God. And you know, that was the start. Here's where that's so, here's where that's missing. It's not just, oh yeah, he got a Bible fact wrong. Here's what was so sad about that perception, and maybe you have that perception, and I've got really good news for you if you have that perception. Um, God didn't just send someone to go fix the problem. God came himself. Jesus is God. And God comes himself in Jesus Christ, and he dies for our sins. We should die, but he dies in our place. We should pay the penalty. He pays the penalty in our place, dies on the cross, is buried, and is raised on the third day. That's what the good news is. He didn't just go create someone to fix the problem. He came himself and suffered in our place. That's why it's really good news. And so now we can be right with God. If we believe in Jesus, yes, Jesus is God. We must believe that. Yes, he came and lived a perfect life. Yes, he gave his life for us. Yes, he died for us. Then he came back to life. And now if we believe in him, our sins are all forgiven. And so now, once you believe in Jesus, once you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, then we're in a back in reconciled in a relationship with God. And God loves us just like he loves his own son, Jesus, who is God. God loves us. God treats us just like him. Forgiven, welcomed. When Jesus is baptized, God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you're a Christian today, here's the statement of God over your life. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased for they are united in Christ. There with Jesus, I'm well pleased with them. And so that's the big key. It's not just that, oh yeah, there's a God out there. So now I can enjoy my life. Oh no. It's I'm separated from God by my sin, but God has come and made him uh, made a way that I can be reconciled to him. And so I believe in this one Jesus as my savior. And now my life is pleasing to the Lord because I am in a relationship with him. Now I can make choices that are displeasing to him by sin, but my position, my stature, my nature, who I am, what God thinks of when he sees you in me is there in Christ and they are forgiven. And so they're pleasing. So for the Christian, 
It is possible to have a life full of joy, even in suffering, even in trial, because we are united to God. We see all of life as a gift from him. We receive it from his hand and we realize the ability to enjoy our lives is his gift as well. That's what comes to the one who pleases him by the grace of God. Life under the sun is meaningless. Life with God is full of joy. And here's a great truth. Life is in God's hands. That's the other big point of the book. Life is in God's hands. In chapter 3, he opens up. You must be thinking, wow, we got 12 chapters. We're on chapter 3. Well, I told you we're going to skip over a lot of the middle because it's repeated ideas. But chapter 3, he opens up with this beautiful poem. Beautiful poem. You may know it. It was a song from the 60s. But before that, it was in the Bible. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into our hearts, yet so so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here's what he's saying. There's this beautiful poem about time. But it's not just this nice idea. Hey, yeah, sometimes it's appropriate to laugh. Sometimes it's appropriate to cry. Sometimes we should be grieving. Sometimes we should be dancing. Sometimes we should be breaking things down. Sometimes we should be building things up. And that's just how life goes. That's not the point of the poem. The point of the poem is found at the end when he says he makes everything beautiful in its time. He's saying that God is God over all the times. So this is the big idea, the big third idea. Life is meaningless without God. With God, life is full of joy, and God has all of life in his hands. It's a way to look at life and to understand life. Solomon cannot understand life. It's meaningless. It doesn't make sense. He's weary. At one point, he says, I can't even sleep at night thinking about this. But this is a grid that helps us put everything together in life. God is sovereign. That's a big theological word, which means he controls everything. And so for the Christian, the person who knows God, who knows the love of God, the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done for us, Jesus reveals that God is good. He is God. He is merciful and loving. And so we know that this good God has all of our times in his hands, all of our life, all of our seasons. He talks about different seasons, kind of. We don't control them. He controls them. And he gives us two really comforting ideas, truths, bedrock truths that God is in control. God is sovereign. The first one is this, that because God is sovereign, we can have comfort to know that he makes everything beautiful in its time. God is working your life and my life, and he's writing a story, we could say, our life together as well. Or he's weaving, he's painting a portrait. Or an image I like is he's weaving something. It's like he's weaving a tapestry, and, and, and we can't understand it. That's what Solomon's saying. He couldn't understand life. It, it eluded him. It was elusive. He couldn't grasp it. But then he makes this point, you know, however, but God is in charge of it all. And sometimes we can look at our lives, and they just feel like a mess. Um, there's unanswered questions. There's broken relationships. There's confusion. There's medical needs. There's physical suffering. There's depression, emotional suffering. There's problems in school. There's problems on the job. There's problems in the church. And we can feel like life is like a, it's just a jumbled mess. It doesn't make sense to me. And we all have those moments. And, and what he's saying is all of those times are in God's hand. I love the image of a tapestry. That's really what it's like. Have you ever seen the bottom side of a tapestry? 
it, it looks like a jumbled mess. If, it's being, if, if the weaver is weaving it on a loom, it, it looks to the untrained eye, or even maybe to the trained eye, just like a jumble of string or yarn or thread or whatever you do a tapestry with. I don't know what it's called, but the stuff, the string stuff, the yarn, it just looks like a big mess. But if you look on the other side and can see the top, you can see a beautiful tapestry being woven. And he's saying that's our lives, that God makes everything beautiful in a time. Under the sun, oftentimes all we see is the jumbled string knotted up, chaotic, incoherent, uh, even ugly at times. But if we could see from God's perspective, we would see that our whole lives are in his hand and that he's weaving a beautiful tapestry. And that he holds us in his hands and that he will make everything beautiful in its time for the Christian. For the person who knows God, everything is working for our good and for his glory ultimately. That's what he says. So our life is in his hands. It's very, very good news. The second thing that he tells us in this book, and he talks in several chapters about it, that God is sovereign, that should bring rest to our hearts, is that God is sovereign, that he is a judge, and that he'll work everything out in the end. Ecclesiastes, this writer, he looks at the injustices of life. He's a compassionate man. I didn't want to make him sound like he's just a hedonist who doesn't care about anybody or anything. He's a compassionate man because he says he looks around and he sees people oppressed. And he he hates that. He doesn't like that. He sees oppression, people sinning against people. And he says, this is wrong. And if God's not in control, if there's not a God who's in control, there's no meaning. People just oppress. People are oppressed because of their race or because of their economic condition or because of their age. And so we have governments oppressing people in some nations, regimes, totalitarian regimes harming people. We have sex trafficking. We have women and children being abused in all kinds of other different ways. We have the strong preying on the weak. We have the powerful acting for their good at the expense of those who lack power. So we see you know, large-scale injustices, and we see minor injustices, too, on a, like a personal level. We see those kinds of things. We see wicked people prospering. We see righteous people suffering. And he says, how do you make sense of that? Well, you just look, and you're looking at the bottom of a loom, and we can't make sense. We're to act and bring justice and help wherever we can, but we'll never solve it all. But what he's saying on the other side of the loom is that there is a God who ultimately will sort everything out in the end. And that's where he ends his whole book. At the end of the book, he says, his whole point at the end is to say that we're to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the last verse of the whole book. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God is in control. If God is not in control, life does not make sense and it's meaningless. If God is in control... It doesn't make sense in that we can figure everything out right now, but we do know that God will make everything beautiful in his time and God will reconcile all the loose ends at the, at the end and he will judge those who have not trusted Christ and sentence them to condemnation, to hell. And those who have trusted Christ, he will bring into his presence for all eternity. Life under the sun is meaningless. Life with God is full of joy. Life is in God's hands. And here's the last point. Life is short. So make it count. Life is short, so make it count. Now that sounds like something to put on a, you know, like a self-help positive poster. I mean, I can see a runner, you know, in that picture. Life is short, make it count or something like that. But I'm saying that with all this other background about God and his purposes and about Christ, that's all the background behind that, that he's sovereign. The middle sections of the book, he talks a lot about death. Matter of fact, in chapter 7, he said, it's better to go to a funeral than a party. He said, you're better off at a funeral than you are at a birthday party because at a funeral, you learn a lesson that life is short. And he says, the living will take that to heart. So he starts talking about the brevity of life. Life is short. God is in control. Life is short. Life is short. And so every funeral anticipates our own. He makes that point in the, middle, in the seventh chapter of the book. And he goes on to say, because life is short, here's a couple of really important points. Everything matters. In chapter 9, he says, we're all going to die. It's almost gruesome. It, we're, we're not gruesome, but it's, 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 um, it's shocking. We're all going to die. You know, better to be a living dog than a dead lion, he says. So we're all going to die. But he says, since we're all going to die, then we need to 
appreciate and enjoy all that God has provided. And so he goes into this picture, all of life. Again, he says it multiple times can be celebrated. Here he talks specifically about meals. You can eat with celebration, chapter 9. You can drink with celebra- drink wine with celebration, he says. Um, it's a grace of God. You're married. You can enjoy your wife. He says, go. He says, go. It's a command. Go enjoy your wife if you're married. Um, because it is the gift of God. And it's not, he's not just saying because life is short. He's saying that's where, that's where your calling is. You're to, in all the things of life, you're to do them for God's glory. So, for instance, in your marriage... He says marriage is, a, ultimately the New Testament teaches, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, Christ's love for the church. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus sacrifices himself for the joy set before him. So he's infusing all of life. The Bible infuses all of life and meaning. The Bible doesn't say, he says, enjoy your wife. Why? Because it's a meaningful relationship. It's not just, well, we're like, we're roommates just trying to kind of make it through life together in in a common pursuit of all this stuff, trying to find meaning. For the Christian, he says, no, it's difficult. It's challenging. Husbands, you will sacrifice for your wives. Wives, you're to respect your husbands. This is really, really hard. But oh, what kind of purpose is in that? You're representing God. You're representing Christ's love for the church. It's a, it's a picture of the work of God. Marriage is full of meaning, way more meaning than any of us can even imagine. That's the picture of the Bible. Small things are infused with purpose and meaning. And life is very short, so take advantage and make all of that count. Everything matters, he says. And secondly, he says, invest all that you have. Invest what you have because life is short. And that's where he comes to in chapter 11. So chapter 9 is what I was just talking about. That's what he comes through in chapter 11. He basically says, hey, remember all that stuff? God is sovereign. God's in control. It's all true. God is in control, so get busy. God is in control of everything, so get busy. It's not a reason to lay back. It's not a reason to not engage your life. It's not a reason to say, oh, it doesn't really matter. I'm saved. God forgave my sins. Now I'm just going to kick back. No, God is sovereign. He did forgive your sins. Life is to be full of joy. He is in control of everything. So get busy. And here's the picture he gives us of getting busy. My words, not his. Um, 11, chapter 11, verse 6. This is the last verse we'll look at. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. God has given us so much in Jesus Christ, and he's saying take everything you have, it's like a bag of seeds, and plant it all in the ground because you don't know what God, what kind of crop, what kind of harvest he will bring up. And we talked about that's all of our relationships. So I'm to take, I'm to invest into my marriage. I'm to invest into my parenting. I'm to invest into the workplace. I'm to invest into my family, my friends, my neighbors. I'm to invest everywhere. And that's a, those investments are costly oftentimes. We're to make costly investments. Farming's not easy. We think, oh, sow some seed. That's a pleasant little picture. Farming is hard work. I don't know if there's any harder work than farming. So he's not painting like life is just a vacation. But it is full of meaning. We're planting seed and watching what God will do. We're sharing the good news and watching who God will save. We're giving generously of our finances to fund God's mission and see how he will use that to reach those around us and to the nations beyond. Nobody wants to get to their end of their lives sitting on a sack of seed, wasting all that God gave us. God has given us everything to leverage for his glory, to use for his purposes at cost to ourselves. And when we do that, life will be drenched with meaning. There's no, there's just no biblical concept of being bored. I don't think the, I never read Paul and go, I think that guy was bored a lot. The sowing seed is taking whatever I have and investing it so that life is full. It's, there's unexpected stuff happening all the time. God is acting. God is moving. Even toil can be filled with joy and purpose because our work is worship to God. It's not just getting a paycheck so that you can use your paycheck to do something for God. The work itself is for God. All of life live for the glory of God. So this is Ecclesiastes' point. He's saying, don't be so narrow like there's just certain things that are for God. All of life is for God. To be lived for God. So... Here are the big ideas of the book. Life is meaningless under the sun. Without God, in other words, life is empty. 
So let's not chase that. God's already told us. Why get to the end of our lives and say, hey, we got it all like he did and we're empty. Secondly, life with God is full of joy. I did not say problem free, but I said in our good times and our bad times, there can be a sense in our heart that God is working in us and that this has a purpose and a a meaning in our lives. And we are pleasing him because we are in relationship with him, forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so the greatest joy is to wake up with my sins forgiven, knowing that I'm welcomed before God. There's no better news than that. So life with God in Jesus Christ is filled with joy. Third, life is in God's hands. Whatever happens to us, we have this bedrock foundation that God is in control and that he's weaving a beautiful tapestry and that everything will be beautiful in its time. Even if it's ugly right now under the sun, God has not left us. He is working with us. And lastly, don't abuse that and say, it doesn't matter what I do. God's going to do what he wants to do. No, life is short. You're going to die. You learn more at a funeral than at a birthday party. So count your days and use every, every bit of our days for his glory. Get busy, take whatever he's given us and plant it as seed and see what God will do in our jobs, in our families, in our, in our church, in our mission. It's a, lot, it's a picture of life that starts out very empty, but, but is ultimately one, his description is ultimately one full of joy and full of meaning. What's the point of life? Well, from Ecclesiastes' point of view, I think that's, point of the, that's the point of life. And isn't God good to provide that life for us? And we get to do all of that together. I mean, who wouldn't want to have their sins forgiven? I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to go to work and say, this matters for God? I mean, who wouldn't want to have a marriage and say, well, we're not just surviving or occasionally having a romantic outing, but this is a picture of Christ in the church. That this, is, this matters. I mean, who wouldn't want to raise their kids and say, this is an eternal value. We're investing the truth of God, the gospel in the next generation. We're training them by our lives, that we're investing our lives in others for the glory of God. Who wouldn't want that for their kids? Who wouldn't want to go to school and see that all that I'm learning is equipping me to serve the Lord and I want to even do my schoolwork for the glory of God? Who wouldn't want to just say, I'm just trying to get through, as opposed to, this is filled with meaning. And who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where people are doing that together so that when I lose my vision and I forget what the life is all about, someone's there to pick me up. Two are better than one. Someone's there to help me. When I start chasing the wrong thing, someone's there to help me and say, let's chase the right thing together, the right one, Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't want that kind of community in their life? The vision of Ecclesiastes is not an easy life. It's not a prosperity theology, but it's a theology of life to the full in joy because of Jesus Christ. Let's ask him for that life together. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.